morning will be in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 10. Continuing our series, going through the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1 through verse 10. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. About a year ago, I was going through the process trying to become the pastor here at Pleasant Grove. There were several steps, applications, resumes, interviews, phone calls, visits, eventually a vote. I wasn't actually made the pastor here until I came here, I preached, and then you voted me in as your pastor. But along the way, I still had another job. I was working. I was working at Midwestern Seminary in the admissions department, and I hadn't really told anybody uh, about the process I was going through. I didn't have another job yet, so I didn't want to quit my old one uh, because I didn't know how things were going to go here. Uh, But I remember Dusty and I came and interviewed on a weekend, the weekend before the Southern Baptist Convention. We came down interviewed, and then drove back up, and then had to go to the Southern Baptist Convention where I had to work the booth in the admissions department at the Southern Baptist Convention. And we hadn't heard anything back yet. We had, we had an interview. No one had offered anything. No one had said, hey, you're going to come preach in view of a call on this date. We didn't have any idea what people thought after the interview. So everything was kind of up in the air. But I remember, while I was standing in the admissions booth next to my boss, and my boss's boss, and my boss's boss's boss, and all of my other co-workers, there was a pastor in Conway, who shall remain nameless, who walked up with a staff member and introduced himself to me and then turned to a staff member and said, hey, this is the new pastor at Pleasant Grove Baptist Church. (laughs) And I froze And I was either beet red or ghost white because that was not true. And I could only think in my head at that moment, oh, no, I don't have another job and I'm about to lose the one that I have. I was so afraid because I had a secret that I didn't want out yet. The time had not yet come to tell people, hey, Maybe I'm going to be leaving. Maybe I won't be doing this in just a few weeks, a few months. I had a secret that I didn't want to get out. Jesus, if you have been paying attention in the book of Mark, has been doing something very strange at the end of a lot of his stories. He'll heal someone. He'll cast out a demon. 
He'll restore sight to the blind. He'll feed a crowd. And then what does he do very often after he does that? He turns to the people that he just healed and says, hey, don't tell anyone. Keep it quiet. He charged them strictly to tell no one about what had just happened. Over and over and over. He does that in the book of Mark. And scholars, when they're reading the book of Mark and commenting on it, they call that idea, what he's doing over and over, the messianic secret. That he was the Messiah, he knew he was the Messiah, and people who saw him and heard what he had done would have figured out that he was the Messiah. And all along the way, he's trying to keep that idea quiet. He isn't wanting the word to get out. Right up until about today, in this text, he was very quiet the whole time. He charged them strictly, tell no one about this. Don't tell people who I am. Don't let the word get out. It never worked, because when you, you know, have your legs restored and people say, what happened? You're going to tell them. This Jesus guy, he did it. But in our text today, Jesus begins to let the secret out. He lets the message out of the bottle. He reveals who he is as the Messiah. He announces it pretty loudly and pretty clearly to anybody who's paying attention. And in this text, we'll see two announcements of the Messiah Jesus. Two things he's letting us know in this text about his work as the Messiah. First of all, Jesus is the Messiah who rules. He's telling them as he enters Jerusalem that, no, I am the Messiah and I have come to rule. I am the king. In the first seven verses, what we get in this text would seemingly be a fairly boring account of Jesus' travel arrangements. We don't usually get that in the book of Mark. Most of the time, Mark breezes over those kind of details. We don't often hear how Jesus gets from point A to point B. And yet, in this text, Mark, who gives so few details over and over, tells us pretty explicitly about Jesus instructing his disciples. He says, go, get a specific animal from a specific place. Say specific things as you do that. And if we'll notice, the point and power of so much of this text today is in those details. The connections that Jesus is intentionally making, which are going to announce who he is and what he's come to do. Coming to announce the secret that he had been keeping all throughout the book of Mark. And as we go, look how intentional everything is. He gives very clear and explicit instructions to two disciples. And everything he says happens exactly as he says it will. That might be a miracle. It might be Jesus' omniscience revealing itself, that he's saying, go, you're going to find these things because he knows all things. It might just be that Jesus planned this ahead of time. He had an arrangement with this guy for his donkey. Either way, it doesn't really matter because either way would reveal that Jesus is doing everything he's doing here with great intent. It's meticulous planning or miraculous foresight. But nothing in this text happens on accident. He tells them, first of all, verse 2, that they will find a colt. He said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt. We know from the Matthew account that this isn't the colt of a horse, it's the colt of a donkey. And you may have heard before, when someone was talking about this text, how the donkey is all about Jesus' humility. That no one would expect to see a new king, the Messiah, coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. They say kings don't ride donkeys, kings ride horses. Kings ride chargers, steeds. They ride in suburbans, tanks. So the donkey in this text is all about Christ's humility. And that's true. 
to some extent. But that's not the full picture. That's not totally wrong, as we'll see whenever we get into this text a little bit deeper. But it's not the full picture of what's happening. In Jerusalem and in the ancient world at this time, kings very often did ride donkeys. In fact, when David was about to die in 1 Kings, his sons were squabbling. Who's going to be the the next ruler? Who's going to be heir to the throne? He settled the dispute by sending Solomon out in front of all the people riding a donkey. That was how they knew that's the new king. He was riding David's donkey, David's mule, to be anointed. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, he is humble and lowly. But he's also announcing that he is revealing himself to be the king. He's the heir to the throne. He's the one who has come to rule. By choosing the donkey, he did that on purpose to show, yes, I am the king who has come to rule, but also to fulfill a messianic prophecy from the book of Zechariah. Now, as I read this text from Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, watch for the parallels between what Zechariah is saying and what we see in the book of Mark. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus, by entering Jerusalem on a donkey amidst great rejoicing, is making it clear that he's the one who that text was talking about. He's the king who's coming to his kingdom. He is the righteous one who has salvation to offer. He is humble. He is mounted on a donkey. And yet in the midst of his humility... His rule is going to extend throughout the whole earth. He's sitting on a colt because he's the Messiah. And in him doing that, he's letting us know that he is the Messiah who has come to rule and reign over his people. And his rule that he does here fulfills the prophecy that was given to the 12 tribes of Israel when they became the 12 tribes of Israel. It's not just this one text that he's fulfilling in our text today. There's more texts. Where is the colt when the disciples find it? What's happening with it? In verse 2, what does he say? You will find a colt tied. The colt is tied up. Now, that seems like a detail we don't need, right? Like, why would Mark tell us, hey, the donkey was tied up when they got there? Weren't they usually tied up when they got there? It would be more... Fantastic. If the donkey were like sitting behind a counter at the local inn. Saying the the donkey was tied, like, yeah, that's what donkeys do. That's where they are. That's what happens to them. Remember back to all the old westerns that your dad used to make you watch. Every time the cowboy got off his house and his horse in front of the saloon, what would he do with the reins? He'd slap them over a post. Pretty quickly, pretty easily. They were always tied up. It wasn't noteworthy for a domesticated animal to be tied up. And yet, we're told this detail in the text. Not just that Jesus says it's going to happen, but then that it does happen. And there's significance here that Mark is including by including that detail. Before Jacob, 
the, the one who is also called Israel, before he dies in Genesis 49, he calls all of his sons who are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel to him, and he blesses them. He tells them what their future is going to hold in God's covenant, what God has for that tribe that they are starting in that day. And here's what he says to Judah whenever he gets there. Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the joyce vine, He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. The fact that the donkey is tied is a connection back to this text. That the one who is going to rule in the tribe of Judah is the one who is fulfilling this text. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. What else would that mean? What other connection would there be between that? Jesus is the one who has washed his garments in wine. He has been the one who has been washed in the blood for us. He's the one who fulfills this text. He's the ruler, the coming king from the tribe of Judah, whose scepter shall never depart from him, and to whom the obedience of all the peoples belongs. And the donkey, this colt, that he is using to announce that he is the fulfillment of this text, is tied, just as was prophesied, all the way back in Genesis. He's the Messiah, and he has come to rule. And just when you thought that I was out of obscure details, to connect between what happened in this text and the fulfillment of Jesus as the Messiah of God, that deals specifically with the donkey, there's one more. They will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. That detail has a twofold importance. First of all, nobody else rides the king's donkey. It's his donkey. You think he's going to just pick up some random donkey that just carried who knows who, who knows where. It's worn out, it's tired, and then they just slap it over and say, yeah, sure, king, get on it. No. It's the king's donkey. Nobody else rides it. Nobody else gets in his chariot. He's the only one who gets to ride it until he no longer has use for it. But if you're familiar with the Old Testament law, you might remember how often it refers to an animal which had never been used. An animal which had never been used in the Old Testament over and over was routinely required for sacred service. Numbers 19.2 calls for one which has never borne a yoke to be used for the purification of the people. Deuteronomy 21.3 calls for the same thing, an animal which has never borne a yoke, and it's there to atone for unsolved murders. 1 Samuel 6.7 requires two cows that had never borne a yoke to carry the Ark of the Covenant out of the city. There's a connection here, over and over in the Old Testament, between an animal on which no one has ever sat, an animal which has never been used for work, and a sacred service given to God for his purposes. In the Old Testament, it was for the purification of the people. It was to make atonement for the guilty. And it was to carry that which is holy. And Jesus is showing them and us that he is the Messiah who has come to rule because he's the one who is fulfilling this text. That animal did have a sacred purpose. It was being used in sacred service. It was to carry the king to his people. 
to show them that he is the king, humble and mounted on a donkey right before them. He even says so explicitly that he is the king in his instructions. Look at the next few verses, verses 3 through 6. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. When the people ask about the donkey, hey, why are you untying that? Is that yours? Does that belong to you? You can't just walk up and untie somebody else's donkey. What are you thinking? He says, tell them the Lord has need of it. And when they hear that phrase, that the Lord is the one who needs the donkey, they don't think of the donkey's owner, that Lord, that master. They probably don't think of Jesus because he's not that widely known. They may not have had any idea that this is who it was specifically used for. What they hear when they hear the Lord has need of the donkey is they think, oh, God needs it. God needs the donkey. So, yeah, sure. You said God needs it. Take it. If he needs it for his service, go for it. Jesus asked his disciples to get a colt for him. And if anyone has questions, just say, God asked for it. In what could easily feel to us like a throwaway line, Jesus says, yeah, sure, just tell him God needs it. He's actually telling anyone who has any idea the full picture of what's going on, no, I am God. I do need it. I'm going to sit on that donkey. God needs the donkey. I need the donkey. One and the same. I and the Father are one. He's showing them who he is, even in these tiny little details. If he needs the donkey, God needs the donkey. He is the Messiah, the anointed one of God who has come to rule and to reign over his people. And so the people honored him in that same way. For those paying attention in the crowd, they had put all of this together. They had seen his ministry. They had understood what that looked like. They were seeing these details and connecting them, saying, okay, yeah, this is the Messiah. He's fulfilling all these texts. He's doing what he said he was going to come do. Look at the next two verses, 7 and 8. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. What they're effectively doing is laying out the red carpet before him. They're giving him honor and praise, saying, no, 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 not even your donkey's going to touch the ground. Step on my coat instead. The disciples were giving up their cloaks for a saddle. The crowds gave up their coats for a runway. They were filling the gaps between the coats with the palm branches. And this wasn't just something that they came up with. They said, you know, this will be cool. They started throwing down their coats. There was precedent for it. Again, in the Old Testament, when Elisha anoints Jehu as king of Israel to overthrow Jezebel, to overthrow the house of Ahab, those in attendance, when he's anointed, when he goes out to do his job, do the exact same thing. 2 Kings uh, chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. And he said, Thus and so speak to me, saying, spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. You see, the king doesn't walk on the ground like everybody else. To honor him, they throw their coats on the ground before him. 
every detail in this text is saying over and over and over again, Jesus is the Messiah King who has come to reign and rule over his people. He is announcing it. He's no longer keeping it quiet. It's no longer strictly charging them, don't tell anybody. He's saying, yep, here I am. I've come. I'm fulfilling all of these texts. You've got to see me for who I am. You've got to worship me for who I am. I am the king. Honor me in that way. He's announcing it, that he is the one who has come to rule. But he's also announcing that he is the Messiah who has come to save. That's the second announcement that he's making in this text. He is the Messiah who rules, but he's also the Messiah who saves. The people, in response, after throwing down their coats, they begin shouting for salvation. Verses 9 and 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, if you notice, I just said they're shouting for salvation. That's what they're asking for. That's what they're looking for. But that's not what they said, right? It sounds more like praise to me. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. It sounds more like praise and blessing than it does a plea for salvation, doesn't it? And that's usually how we think about this scene. We think it's a big parade. We think it's like the end of the Phantom Menace. They're all like walking in. There's a big crowd. There's all these trumpets. They're singing and dancing as they're going through the whole way into Jerusalem. It's a big party. They're throwing down coats. They're throwing down branches. He's riding on a donkey and they're just singing and dancing as they go. And that's true, right? That's what's happening. They do that. But in the midst of all of that praise, in the midst of All of that glory that they're giving, there's hidden within that a plea for salvation. They're begging to be saved by the God that they're worshiping as they come in. They're joyously going up to Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. But the joy that they have is coming from an acknowledgement of God's coming salvation to them. Because that salvation is what the Passover is meant to celebrate. It's a festival of remembrance. It's remembering back to when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. That the last plague that he gave to the Egyptians was that he's going to kill the firstborn of every family. And that would have been true even for the Israelites. But they were saved by the blood of the lamb that they spread on the doorpost. When the angel of the Lord saw that, he passed over that house and went to the next one. That's the Passover celebration. Because the lamb's blood had already been spilled, no more blood had to be shed. The Passover is a proclamation. It's a remembrance of God's salvation in the past. So when they're parading into Jerusalem for the Passover, their shouts that they are shouting, that praise, that blessing, their shouts of praise and joy specifically for the salvation of God. But somewhere hidden within that, is a plea. They're begging. That word, Hosanna, we hear it and we often think, hallelujah. Hosanna, hallelujah, same thing, just different words. Hosanna is like hooray. And to a certain extent, that's true. It is praise. But what the word actually means is slightly different. 
Hosanna is a compound word in the original language. It's two words brought together. And when you bring those two words together, what it literally means is, Oh God, save us. Oh God, save. They're shouting and proclaiming, yes, in joy, yes, in celebration. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed be God. Blessed be the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna. Oh God, save us. You've done it once. Do it again. Please. Look at your people. See our predicament. And do what you have done in the past for us now. Even as they're celebrating the Passover salvation of God, they're pleading, save us again. Save us still. And they're able to be joyous as they do that. They're able to praise as they do it because of their confidence that he's going to answer. That as they ask him to save, he will save. But don't miss the fact that these pilgrims who are coming with Jesus on their way out of Galilee and into Jerusalem are crying desperately, God, save us, even in the midst of their joy. They're crying out in a messianic hope because Mark is presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of all of those cries for salvation. The ones who believe that he's the Messiah, the ones who've been paying attention, they're chanting and pleading, okay, this is it. This is the time. God's going to fulfill his promises in the coming Messiah, in the anointed one. And this is the moment. All of Jesus' ministry has been leading up to Jerusalem, and now he's finally there. He's at the gates. Whatever he's going to do as the Messiah, he's going to do now. And what they desperately want, what they desperately believe, what they're desperately asking for is that he will save them. That he'll deliver them from their oppression. Oh God, save us, please. It's a messianic hope that they're proclaiming. Look at what they say in addition to Hosanna in verse 9. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one that God has given us. Blessed is the one who is coming to do what God has given him to do. The one who comes to fulfill God's promises, to fulfill God's purposes. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're hoping that the Messiah is the one who's coming. And they're looking for him. They're looking for the Messiah to be the one who comes and saves. And a certain number of them know, they believe, Jesus is the one who's come to do that. This is it. They're not just crying generically. Yeah, God, save us. We, we messed up again. Save us whatever you have planned, whatever. However you're going to do that, go for it. They're saying, no, 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 save us by sending us the one that you promised. Save us by sending us the Messiah that we desperately need. They're asking that he'll save them by sending the Messiah to them. They're asking him to keep his promises through the chosen one, the line of David, who is going to come and rescue his people. Verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. You see, it's not just salvation they want. What they're asking for, what they're really looking for, is the restoration of Israel. They want Israel to be a powerful nation again, just like it was in the past. They see the salvation that God is bringing really as just a means to that end. Yeah, sure, save us so that we can get the kingdom. We want to be a nation again. We want the power. We want the blessing. We had it before. Save us again so that we can get that. Yeah, do whatever you're going to do so that we can end up with the, the nation of Israel being powerful again. 
They want David and his royal line to be restored and the power, the status, and all the people they used to have that comes with that. They're wanting an earthly kingdom. They want Israel to matter again, to be great again. And the Jewish people at this time, even the elites, the powerful in Jerusalem, even them, they were under severe oppression from the brutal Roman Empire. The Romans tolerated their existence because when you're in charge, you have to have people to be in charge of. When you're ruling, you have to have people to rule. So they let them be. They let them continue. But the Jews, who are supposed to, in the Romans' eyes, be serving and worshiping the Roman Caesar, the Roman gods, they kept just stubbornly holding on to this whole God thing. All those traditions that they had before. They kept holding on to this hope that he was going to come and save them, that they were going to be free again. And every few years, the Jews kept rising up to try to make that happen. Every few years, there was a new revolution, a new uprising, a new guy who they thought was the Messiah who was supposed to lead them and restore Israel, and they'd all jump on board, they'd all get killed, and then 30 years, they'd do it again. Over and over and over again, the pesky Jews kept annoying the Romans by expecting an earthly kingdom to be restored then and there. And these pilgrims who were going up toward Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover with this Jesus who has revealed himself to be the Messiah over and over and over again, they're hoping that this Messiah, that he's going to be a conquering hero, that he's going to lead them into battle. He's going to defeat the Romans. He's going to set up an earthly rule just like they used to have under David, just like they enjoyed under Solomon. And that's not what Jesus came to do. That's not what Jesus is telling them he's going to do. He is the king who's come to rule and reign, but his kingdom doesn't look like that. As he enters Jerusalem, yeah, he's absolutely announcing to anyone who's paying attention, yes, I am the Messiah. I've come to rule. I've come to save. But his kingdom, his rule, it's just not the kind of kingdom that they were expecting. What they wanted was a battle. A conquering hero who would destroy the powerful over them and then set up his rule as an earthly king. What they wanted was the glory days back. They said things used to be really nice. Can we get back to that? We used to have a kingdom. We used to have a land. We used to have a people. And they thought that the only way to get that back was through their strength, through their power, through someone, a Messiah, to lead them, but then eventually to set up the kingdom the way that they wanted it to be. And this Messiah, who's humbly entering Jerusalem on a donkey, that's not quite what they would have had in mind. They would have really preferred the the guy in the tank who's coming along to restore his people. But what they got was one lowly, Mounted on a donkey. And the donkey in this text specifically is a symbol of peace. Remember back to Zechariah 9, verse 10. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The one who comes on the donkey to rule is coming to rule not through bloodshed, not through war, but rather through peace. He does come. He sets up his kingdom. 
But it's not a bloody battle. It's not a bloody fight. He comes and sets it up in peace. The chariot's cut off. The war horse is cut off. The battle bow is broken. And he proclaims his peace to all the nations. Not just to Israel. Not just to set up his people again. But to make all people his people. To bring them all under his rule. All under his peace. He proclaims peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. And that peace, that message that he does have a kingdom, but his kingdom doesn't look like what they wanted it to, that's what's going to get him killed. This is Sunday. By Friday, he's dead. And everyone is on board with getting rid of him because they all think that he's here to overthrow the Romans. So when the Jews who are in power don't like that idea that he's going to be the one to lead, They tell the Romans, hey, he's coming to overthrow you. So then the Romans are totally fine. All right, yeah, kill him. One less would-be revolutionary. One fewer king of the Jews. His proclamation of peace in his rule and in his reign upset really everybody. There wasn't a group that was excited about that message. And I think... This idea that Christ is coming to set up an earthly kingdom can still get us in trouble today. That we today want our world to look the way we think it should, which means whatever we say, wherever I want. We think that he's going to set up an earthly kingdom now. Before he comes, before he restores all things, before he does win a bloody battle, we think that we'll just usher it in. We'll just do the work. So many of us tend to want salvation for the people around us, not so much because we care about them, but so that our society ends up looking the way we want it to look. So many of us want God to bless America, that he might be able to make us great again in the hopes that things will look the way we want it to look. That we're expecting an earthly kingdom now. We aren't on board with a God who comes and saves and brings his peace among all the nations. We're so focused on this nation. And while I'm all for a better society, one that's more moral, one that's more just... I want God to bless America. That sounds really great to me. He has before. He continues to do so. I hope he does continue to do so. I want America to be great. Who doesn't? But I'm not willing to forsake his heavenly kingdom in the pursuit of what I want this earthly kingdom to look like. His kingdom is not of this world. And it's a peace that's proclaimed to all the nations. I think the danger here is that we can get so wrapped up in wanting an earthly kingdom immediately that we forget, wait a second, America's not the kingdom of God. It's not a one-to-one. He didn't come to set up America as the best nation. He came to set up his kingdom, his message, his rule, his reign. America's not included in that sentence. It may be. I hope it is. But he can do his purposes with or without us at the center of it. 
His kingdom is not of this world. He's come to rule and to save from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And when his kingdom is fully realized on earth, it's not a means to any other end. We don't get his kingdom so that America looks good. We get his kingdom. Full stop. Whatever part America has to play within that. And I hope it's a great one. We get his kingdom. What difference does it make anymore? I think we can fall under the same temptation that these people fell into, which eventually led them to shout, crucify him. Because he's not giving us what we wanted. We came to him expecting what we wanted to get. And because he doesn't deliver on what we thought we wanted, we so often turn on him. We so often think he's not fulfilling his end of the bargain. He has come to rule and to save not for any other reason or for any other kingdom than that he might be glorified. And he has come to save, not only because of what the people are saying, but also because of where they're getting it. We know that. They didn't come up with what they're saying in verses 9 and 10 on their own. What they said is a quote from Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verses 25 through 29. It says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The people were chanting this song as they went up to Jerusalem, because they probably did that every year as they went up to the Passover. But it has special significance here, because it applies to Jesus even more specifically. Notice they cut off the verse uh, one too early. They quote verses 25 and 26, but what about 27? What about the end of that? Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. They didn't know it, but they were pre-celebrating the sacrifice of Jesus on their behalf because of their salvation that was about to come. The animal which has been brought to the altar to be sacrificed on on behalf of the people through whom they are able to celebrate and be saved, that's Jesus. He is the festal sacrifice who has come to be there as the atonement in the substitutionary place of his people. They're celebrating his salvation without even acknowledging the fullness of what that looks like or what that means. They're able to extol him. They're able to give him praise. Because out of his steadfast and faithful love, which does endure forever, he saved them through the sacrifice of Christ. You see, he is revealing that he has come to save them in this text over and over again. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came. He is the Messiah. He announced to anyone who is paying attention in this text that that's who he is. He's the sacrificial lamb who has come to atone for his people as their substitute. He died in our place, in your place, though he was perfect. Even though because of our sin, we deserve to die. And through that death, through his sacrifice for us in our behalf, along with his glorious eventual resurrection as the Messiah, he has saved us. 
He's earned the right to rule. And we can be saved today. He came to restore and rule and reign and save his people. And you can be numbered among those people right now, today. You can acknowledge him as the ruler today. He came lowly and seated on a donkey last time. But next time, he is coming on a white horse to judge the living and the dead. He's coming to wage war, no longer peace. He's coming to win once and for all against every evil force in this world. But before he gets there, he came lowly and mounted on a donkey to rule and to reign, to save his people, to be the sacrifice for his people. We can be saved from the eventual fate of death and hell apart from him today. We can be ruled by the benevolent king today. And I hope we will. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for not only being the one who comes to rule, being the one who comes to save, but telling us those things, letting us know. Thank you for announcing, not only in this text, but in every text, that you are the king, that you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. You've come to rule and reign and save and set up your kingdom. Let us not come to you for any other reason than to get you. Let us not look for you to set up any other kingdom other than yours. Let us be the kind of people who acknowledge you, who sing praise to you as we come before you. Oh God, save us. Oh God, save us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing 336 again. Yeah.